Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 95 with Elliot Wagenheim. Elliot shared a bundle of great perspective in how instead of being a lawyer who prevents folks from doing exciting stuff, he's all about enabling folks to do some exciting stuff. So you're going to learn, one, why you should switch to the fire, aim, ready mindset. Two, why you should rethink your yearly evaluation And three, an innovative way for sketching out expectations. So if you'd like to check out the show notes, the transcripts, or the links to items mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep95. And I would recommend while you're over there at awesomeatyourjob.com, you check out some of our handy free resources that come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and colors from the 10 days to winning at work email course to right now. What we're running is a, what I call a honeymoon special because As this episode is released, I'm currently on my honeymoon. Just got married. Yay. And so to celebrate, if you or your team is looking to have some training occur in 2017 or even possibly considering it, if you shoot me a note now, emailing me, Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com or send that form through on the page, awesomeatyourjob.com with training programs you'll receive a $1,000 discount off my flagship program called Enhanced Thinking and Collaboration. On average, teammates who go through this program shave about an hour and 24 minutes of wasted time out of each and every week due to having sharper collaborations, reduced rework, more succinct communications, and all kinds of good stuff there. So If that sounds like your cup of tea, I'd love to meet you in person and rock and roll that way. But first, let's rock and roll with Elliot here. Elliot Wagenheim is a speaker, strategist, author, educator, and business lawyer with 30 years experience helping clients embrace rather than inhibit innovation. Through his OutLawyer platform, Elliot serves as a confidant, mentor, strategist, and sounding board for guiding entrepreneurs and organizational leaders of every size company across diverse industries. OutLawyer Elliot Wagenheim brings humor, real-world experience, and an entrepreneurial spirit to all that he does. Here's Elliot. Elliot, thanks so much for being here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to it. Now, I understand that the state of Maryland has designated you the honor of being a super lawyer. (laughs) What exactly does that mean? And how did you find yourself there? Well, I'll tell you. Let me ask you this. Do you want the PR answer or do you want the real answer? Oh, let's get gritty and real. (laughs) The real answer, Pete, is that it's a game. I mean, now look, I don't mean anything against the people at Super Lawyer. What it's supposed to be is peer review. So I think each state has this, and so they send out these surveys to lawyers and judges with names, and you can vote. And so you ostensibly get the honor of being named a super lawyer or a rising star by having been voted by your peers, and that's great. I mean, it looks good on the website. I think you have to be around for a while. You have to have a certain reputation. But at the same time, a lot of these awards – in whatever industry, are for PR value. I mean, they're a game. There may be a way to stack the deck. There may be a way to call people and say, please vote for me or please do this. And people do it. And I'm not necessarily saying that with Super Lawyer, but with a lot of these awards, there's a cottage industry of awards. 
And so I think that we're really good at what we do and we serve our entrepreneurial community very well and faithfully. But it's not to mean in all honesty that somebody who does not have that designation on their website is somehow inferior. Okay, understood. And so I guess I'm curious to hear, though, is it fair to say it would be hard for a lousy lawyer to become a designated super lawyer if peers have to vote for them? Yeah, I think so. I am talking to you from the wonderful city of Baltimore. And Baltimore is often known as Smaltimore by the people who live here, which means that if you're in Baltimore and you and I have never met, there's no way that I couldn't place two phone calls and find out who you are, where you went to high school, and probably the girl you took to prom. Mm. I mean, it's a city, but people know each other well. And so if, especially here, if you have a poor reputation, word will get around very quickly. And so you wouldn't get the designation. You wouldn't have the awards, the AV rating, and the other things that I have because it's a body of work. And so that is fair to say. Well, before we get into the meat of some of your expertise with the fire, aim, ready mindset and philosophy, I'd like to just quickly say with a super lawyer and other designations, any perspective you can share about how you grew to become awesome at your job? Yeah, I think that it's really adopting my client's mindset. So all I do is work with small to mid-sized businesses and a good number of them are entrepreneurs. What makes me good at being a lawyer is the fact that I'm actually an entrepreneur and business person who happens to be a lawyer. I see. You know, if I were a lawyer first, if I had that mindset first, then I'd approach my job in a different way. But the really key part of this is that I've got to be able to see the world through the eyes of my clients. I've got to see the world through the eyes of an entrepreneur because too many lawyers adopt the mindset that they make their money by keeping exciting things from happening. You know, right. I mean, they're there to protect people from risk. And so maybe the best way to protect you from risk is saying, well, don't go out, don't do anything, don't interact with the world. But if you have the mindset of your best customers, if you are them, if you think like them, if you talk like them, if you worry about the things that they worry about, if you have the aspirations that they do, then it's easy to serve them. And so that's what I do. Okay, cool. And at the same time, you're also producing some content and some books and some goodness. Can you share a little bit about what's your Fire Aim Ready approach all about? Fire Aim Ready is a mindset of starting with the end in mind. So this is where I came to it from. When I was in law school, one of the first things they tell you about being a trial lawyer is to write your closing argument first. And the reason for that is in closing argument, you can say whatever you want if, and the if is, if those statements, if whatever argument you're making is actually based upon evidence that was introduced during the trial. All right. So if I say, he couldn't possibly have committed that crime, he was in Las Vegas at the time the bank was robbed in Wyoming. Well, that's fine, but I can't say that in closing argument unless I introduced evidence or testimony that said that he was in Las Vegas at the time the bank was robbed in Wyoming. So if you write your closing argument first, you imagine all of those things you want to be able to say to the jury, and then you have to go back and reverse engineer it and say, well, geez, if I want to say this stuff, then what's the evidence? How am I going to set myself up for success in my closing argument? 
And it's the same way in business. So I know this is a long answer. I apologize for that. But let's talk about hiring somebody. If you're going to hire somebody and you're excited about it, you have a need, it's going to be filled. They want the job. It's a happy conversation. It's great. But what if before you extended your hand across the table, you looked them in the eye and you said, hey, here's why I'm going to fire you. I'm going to fire you if you lose the McCormick account. I'm going to fire you if your customer satisfaction rating is below 95%. I'm going to fire you if you're over budget. I'm going to fire you if you're behind schedule. Now, that's not a warm and fuzzy conversation, but <laughs> nobody, leaves, nobody leaves that discussion without an idea of exactly what the expectations are. Yeah. So that's how you start with the end in mind. You think to yourself, if this doesn't work out, How do I avoid the conversation where I say, hey, I'm going to have to let you go? And the person at the other side of the desk says, why? I thought it was going so well. Well, that is so powerful. And not to get too far down this rabbit trail, but that was actually something I wanted to ask you about because you work with folks to enable them, empower them to do cool, exciting things. And I think one thing I see folks, when they've got sort of a teammate who's just not engaged, interested, cutting the mustard, maybe even toxic mm-hmm. and sabotaging things. I was thinking, well, why don't you just get rid of that person? Yeah. It seems like there's not a lot of hope. The coaching isn't doing anything. Mm-hmm. And then they say, well, you know, we don't want to get sued. And so it's like, I don't know, I think a fair number of teams have some paralysis associated with doing yeah. what they need to do to get to a world-class team kind of a place because of this fear of wrongful termination suits or whatnot. So what was fun, I know you were just using that as an example, like set some Mm -hmm. fantastically clear expectations right up front about beginning with the end in mind. But while we're on the topic of terminations, can you tell me, is that fear overblown? And is there easy things teams can do to protect themselves so that they can replace troublesome team members when necessary? Well, I think that it's not overblown, but it can't lead to paralysis. So I get it. The fear is very real, but there are ways to meet it head on. So the first one is obviously clear expectations. And let's say you didn't do that. Let's say that right now you're in the middle of a partnership relationship, just like you sketched out, you know, that's not working or the other side's not pointing their way. You can still have that conversation. You can sit down and say, look, we're going to have to part company unless this is my issue. Unless we have these things, I'm going to keep coming back to this place where I think the partnership isn't working. So this is what I have to see happen. One, two, three, four, five. And you see if you can put each other on a path to go there. Because here's the key. There is one reason and one reason only that employees file suit against employers. Just one. And that reason is righteous indignation. Okay. Okay. So you can say, yes, you owe me money. But you know what? Filing suit is a pain. And I worry about as the plaintiff, as the employee, I worry about being blacklisted. There might be attorney's fees. I have to go around. Litigation is not cheap. It's not swift. It's a long drawn out thing. And a lot of times I don't want to bother with it, except if I get to a place where I feel morally outraged, I feel, Pete, you can't do this to me. How dare you do this to me? And sometimes I'll get to that place because I think that you did this to me, whatever that was, you know, demotion or you let me go or you kicked me off the team, whatever. 
because of my, you know, my race or my religious background or my, you know, my physical ability, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe that's where I come to it from. Mm-hmm. Maybe I come there because, Pete, you promised me that if I just did these three things, I'd be fine. And now you're firing me and you lied to me. You know, I lost this other opportunity. I have to go home. I have to tell my wife I don't have a job anymore. I'm worried about paying the mortgage. You lied to me. Okay. Now, in order to diffuse that situation, what do you need to do? You need to have clear communication. You need to make sure that to the extent possible that nobody's blindsided. And if they're really on a precipice, if they're looking at being kicked out of their house or, you know, they have to tell their kids they can't go to this school, they have to transfer, you know, see if there is something to make it easy to help them transition out. Mm-hmm. Because the more you can do to eliminate the possibility of righteous indignation, well, that's the more you've done to insulate yourself from being named as a defendant in costly litigation. Okay, thank you. Well, I don't know if you knew we were going to go there. <laughs> no, <laughs> just, but that's okay. <laughs> but that's very helpful. Thank you. Well, so now I want to hear back to the fire him ready mindset. So that makes great sense. You begin with the end in mind, you know, Stephen Covey style. You're yeah. really kind of capturing that. And so, well, what needs to be true or proven or kind of gathered in order mm-hmm. to get to that outcome? So I'd say, do you have any particular tips or distinctions for putting that into practice? I think in some ways that seems pretty fair, logical. Oh, yes, yeah, sure, we should do that. Mm-hmm. But maybe what are some missteps or underutilized best practices for really making that technique fly. Well, so you mentioned Stephen Covey. It's number two in Stephen Covey's. But usually people think of that as a bullet point. Well, I want to hire a rock star recruit. I want to have this $10 million contract and, you know, get all the money that comes along with that. But what I think of it is is storytelling, not a bullet point, but storytelling. So you take this contract. I think you have to ask yourself before you sign a contract, you have to ask yourself, look, If I sign this contract, why would I be calling my lawyer in six months asking him to get me the heck out of this contract? Mm -hmm. What's the story? Sometimes it's, well, I'm not getting paid. But sometimes it's also, well, they didn't give me the supplies that I needed, or they didn't let me get started when I needed, or they kept switching project managers so there was no communication, or, you know, all of these things. What do I need to be successful? What happens if those things aren't there? Why would it become a nightmare for me? So if you tell yourself that story, write it down. You know, it doesn't have to be formal. You can put it on the back of a cocktail napkin, but you have those stories. Then you look at the contract and you say, well, how am I protected from these outcomes? Can I get out if one of these things happens? Same with hiring. What do you want to do when you want to hire a rock star recruit? The chances are that that person is not going to come to you because they saw a banner ad on a website Mm -hmm. or... You know, these people have jobs. A lot of the people you really want, they have jobs. They might be looking kind of, but they're not actively looking. So what you need, your ideal situation would be for one of your employees to have a conversation with this recruit. And the recruit says something like, what's it like working for your company? Why would I want to work there? And your employee lists all of these phenomenal things that appeal directly to the recruit. It might be opportunity for advancement, 
training to get a lot better in what you want to do. It might be, you know, they're tech and social media and branding savvy. It might be they're going to help you establish your own personal brand, whatever's of importance to your particular segment, whatever constitutes your rock star recruits. That's what you'd want your employee to be able to say. So kind of play the game, write down your script for your employee of what you'd want that employee to say if asked by the rock star recruit. And then you reverse engineer your company to make those conversations not only true, but inevitable. Mm. Oh, that's so good. All right. So this kind of reminds me a little bit of the time machine tactic we heard from Stacy Dyer in episode mm-hmm. 92. And so that's fun. So you would then realize, well, I guess we don't do training. <laughs> Let's start doing some training. <laughs> right, right. What would it be if your rock star recruit was talking to your employee and said, hey, do you do training? And the guy goes, nah, he always says that he'll give us training. And I guess if I really pushed it, he might say it's okay. But Really, that's just something on the marketing brochure. You're never going to get that recruit. They're gone. Yeah, I hear you. Well, So that's one fun example is trying to get a high performer in the door. What are some mm-hmm. other places in the world of professional employees just conducting their day in, day out work life where this thought process really yields fruit? Well, I think it's a continuing conversation. So I use calendar years, but we always have multiple conversations during the year. But the calendar year is easy. So I can sit down and I will sit down with my employees in December and I'll say, all right, we're sitting here in December 2016. When we have this conversation in December 2017, what do you want to be true? You know, I know you want to make more money, but what do you want to be true? Is there something you want to be good at? Is there an interest you have? Do you want to have clients in this particular area? Do you wish you had gone to this convention? What can we improve here? Do we need another paralegal or secretary or, you know, so we really take some time and we don't settle with how are things going? Good. How are they with you? Good. Right. You know, we really take some time and we flesh it out. What would make this better? What would make it worse? What are the obstacles, you know, to your doing your best job? And then, We have these conversations, we check in on them a lot. And it's not just, you know, well, we make another appointment on March 15th of 2017. You know, go to lunch, just talk about them. I'll pull out the list that I have, you know, periodically to say, hey, we have weekly meetings, Monday morning meetings to go over all cases. I'll even pull this out and say, hey, we talked about this. Are we making any progress? What's the next thing we have to do? What's the first step in this path? Because I don't want to look at you in December of 2017 and have a big blank on my face when the topic comes up on what did I do to make this happen? So we have that. The other thing that I would absolutely, absolutely do when we go back to the wrongful termination stuff is I would eliminate annual evaluations. Hmm. I hate annual evaluations. And what do you do instead? You just have these continuing conversations. Look, most people now, and give you an example, my wife posted something on her Facebook last night And she was looking at nine o'clock in the evening, two hours after she posted it, she was looking at her phone and she was kind of laughing. I said, what are you looking at? She goes, oh, I was just looking to see the responses and the likes and all that stuff. That's the mindset that we have. And it's not just 20 somethings. That's the mindset. So why is your workplace set up to give feedback after a year? People are looking for feedback after a bathroom break. Right. So that's one thing. But here's the other thing. 
In all of my years as a lawyer, and I have been in front of judges and juries and arbitrators more times than I could possibly count on employment issues, mm-hmm. I have never, ever seen the personnel evaluation, seen that annual evaluation entered as an exhibit on behalf of the employer. No kidding. Never. Never. You know why? Because managers don't know how to fill them out. So here's the thing. You always have this question. (laughs) On a scale of one to five, rate the employee's performance, right? right? Mm -hmm. So think of yourself as a manager. You don't want to put one, one being the worst, five being outstanding. You don't want to put one because if you put one, you're like, well, why the hell is he here? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I should have fired him if he's a one. You don't want to do that. You don't want to put five because for most managers, only God himself gets a five. Right. You know, so it's perfection and whatever. And you still want to leave room to improve. You don't want to put a two because two is still poor. And you're going to have an uncomfortable conversation as a manager if you put a two. And you're going to have to come up with all of these examples. And sometimes you don't have them. And sometimes your examples are because, well, Bob came into my office and told me, hey, don't bring my name into it. But I saw Susan do this. Right. So you can't even bring that up. You know, so you have examples, but you can't talk about them because you're going to ruin your line of communication to Bob to find out what's really happening. So you don't want to put two because that's uncomfortable. So the vast, vast majority of times, the employees are only given threes and fours, average to good. It's safe. There's no uncomfortable conversations. You don't have to do an action plan or or whatever. It's fine. And so here's this employee, and he gets, you know, four years, five years of good to very good evaluations. And then the hammer drops, you know, and, and he sues for wrongful termination. And the employer has somebody raise their hand and says, He's always been a poor employee. (laughs) He's always done this. He never did his job well. He never did this. And what's the employee's lawyer do? He he enters these personnel evaluations, five years of good to very good, and says, well, what? This is your process. Your company said he was above average. How is he all of a sudden a bad employee for the past five years? Oh, that is so enlightening for me. It's, it's, now, I got kind of spoiled because I came from a strategy consulting firm, Bain & Company, and they were just oh, okay. fantastic about reviews. It was like every case and every six months you'd have a review. And it wasn't mm-hmm. just an overall one to five, but it was like they had a level of expectation associated with something like 25 kind of key things they're evaluating you upon and then what they expect from you at each six month interval for how that parameter should be going. And then are you meeting that expectation, slightly exceeding it, overwhelmingly exceeding it, et cetera. So I know I've been spoiled and that's not the norm in most places, but what I loved how you just made that so real associated with, I think you're right in many places, the performance evaluation system is kind of a joke and it isn't even serving the legal cover your rear no. end <laughs> no, it's they are not. hoping for. It's not. And Bain and Company is an excellent firm. It's established. It's fair to say, correct me if I'm wrong, it's fair to say it's got resources for training and for oh, yeah. interior inside development. And that's true. So they can do that. But the vast majority of the entrepreneurs, small to mid-sized businesses with whom I work, Well, if they have managers at all, those managers are trained in doing whatever job it is, you know, being an electrician or being a graphic designer or whatever happens to be, software developer. But they're not trained in 
how to be a manager and how to actually mm-hmm. write and document these personnel evaluations. So people take the easy way out. They don't have an internally developed program by a specialist the way I'm guessing Bain does, mm-hmm. but they borrow a form off the internet or maybe a form from their last job. And so because of the lack of training, you have a manager that reverts back into the mindset that I described, and you're putting a loaded gun in that employee's personnel file, and the gun's pointed at you. Yeah, I hear you. Well, that's quite enlightening. And so I'd like to hear then, so with this revised approach and the fire aim ready world Mm -hmm. of management and coaching and chatting back and forth with employees, what are some sort of best practices associated with is engaging in those conversations? Maybe they are touchy or uncomfortable from time to time about performance and having them go somewhere. Well, I joke around and I say it's not warm and fuzzy, you know, to say, here's why I'm going to fire you. But if you develop a culture, I can look at any one of my lawyers and I can say, I can ask them the question, hey, why should I fire you? List out the things. And we can have this whole list. At what point do you think I would be justified walking into your office and saying, you know, I got to let you go, right? And we've had those conversations. Well, if I did this, if I missed deadlines, if I did that, if I did the other thing, if I, you know, and all of a sudden you start sketching out what it takes to succeed. Where are the expectations? And then I'll ask them the other question, which is, well, what would it take for you to say to a friend when somebody says, hey, how's your job going? What would it take for you to honestly turn to that friend and say, going with Elliot was the best professional decision I made in my entire life? What does that look like? You know, what would have to get you so excited that even though you're not part of a cult, that's (laughs) the first thing that comes to your mind. This was the best move I ever made. And we actually talk about that and get past the kind of hemming and hawing and the general stuff and, you know, really dig deep into it and take time to dig deep into it. And then we both have an idea of what it takes to not just not fail, but what it takes to succeed. And then you can start building programs and making progress and checking in. Hey, I'm still not at the place where you're going to turn to your friend or your dad or whatever and say, this was the best possible position for you, your best decision in your professional career. So let's figure out what else can I do? What else can we figure out? And a lot of times that has nothing to do with money. Mm -hmm. People will joke and they'll say, oh, triple my salary. But a lot of times it's not. A lot of times it's, you know what? I need to get better at where I am. Well, I'll give you a short example. I had a lawyer who worked for me and she was really good. But what she really got a charge out of was party planning. Okay. When it was anybody's birthday, you know, when it was the Christmas party, when it was any firm or client event or whatever, she loved that stuff. Everything about it. Choosing napkins. She loved that stuff. And, you know, she was a young lawyer and she was trying to build up a client base. And I called her and we were talking about this and she didn't want to stop doing this and become a party planner. But I said to her, you know, why don't I start introducing you to And we can figure out a way to broaden your context to people who own hotels and catering companies and wedding planning companies and all that stuff. Those are your people. You love these people. You know, you you live and die with their successes and they'd love to hear from you. I bet there are trade groups out there just for party planners. Oh, yeah. You know, and so 
associate with the people who bring you joy. You know, and then instead of them just saying, oh, here's Kimberly, she's a lawyer. You know, hi, Kimberly. <laughs> it's just kind of boring. They get to know you and they wait a minute. She's not just a lawyer that, well, she does divorces, she'll draw up a will, she'll do a contract for a party planning company, and then she'll go do a workers' compensation case. Kimberly loves us, mm-hmm. you know? And so you can start to have these conversations. So I did that, and I introduced her. We represented a number of hotels at a local beach community, and then I kind of gave her some tips and made calls and even set her up in a course that helped networking, you know, so she could make inroads and she joined one of the associations. And so the next year, I mean, we checked in obviously between that, but the next year she had several clients. She was going to these events. She'd been asked to speak at one of their local chapter events because that's what she wanted to do. And she had such a spring in her step because she loved the direction. And I helped her sculpt her career to an area of interest for her. Oh, that is so good. And what I love about this whole visualization process is, you know, you're displaying a fair bit of humility along the way in terms of, you know, what would it take for you to say this is the best decision ever, you know, joining up with Elliot. But at the same time, it doesn't feel super risky and vulnerable because you're visualizing something that's so big. It's like you don't take it personally if you're not there yet. Right. On the positive side or the negative here at Have to Fire You side. It's just sort of like we're imagining these extremes, which could very well happen, but it doesn't feel like spooky, like, oh, oh, it's about to hit the fan. So I'm really liking that. And, you know, it's turnabout is fair play. And I've had employees say, well, let me ask you this. We talked about what it would take for you to fire me and what, what it would take for me to say that this is the best job I ever had. What would it take for you to say that she's the best employee I ever brought on? I thank God every day that she joined my company. Mm -hmm. I say, okay, that's a fair question. You know, these are the things that keep me up nights. This is the stuff I hate to do and I wish I could offload. Now, maybe you're not right for all of them. Maybe that's not your skill set. But if you want to know what would make my life better, it would be finding solutions for this. And because of that conversation, I've had employees say, oh, I like doing that stuff. Why don't I do that? And maybe they can't do everything, but they can really pitch in to an area where they had no idea I wanted somebody to pitch in. Beautiful. Well, I want to cover maybe one more piece before we shift gears and hear about your favorite things. You and your firm have gone about eliminating the billable hour. What's the philosophy there? Well, originally, and in all fairness, originally I had said we eliminated the billable hour, but then clients keep bringing it back. Ah. Um, The philosophy (laughs) there, from a logical standpoint, what a billable hour means is that a contract on which I spend six hours is by definition twice as valuable as the contract on which I spend three hours. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true. I mean, if you want to know as a consumer, if you're spending... $30,000 $30,000 for a car. You want to know you're getting a $30,000 car. If you're spending 60, you want to know that the car that you're spending 60 on has a lot of features and a lot of things over and above the $30,000 car. That's because it's a product. But it wouldn't make a difference to you if they had problems at the plant, if you know the machinery was outdated and the machinery was slow, 
And it took them more time to build the $30,000 car than it did the 60, because the $60,000 car was built in a brand spanking new plant with robotics. Mm -hmm. Why would you pay more for the $30,000 car just because there were manufacturing problems? And that's the billable hour. The problem with the billable hour is that people don't want to buy hours. They want to buy deliverables. They want to buy their stockholders agreement. They want to pay for representation and litigation. They want to buy their you know, their bylaws and their contracts and all that stuff. They want good results. They want to be protected. They want to be able to sleep at night. But it doesn't make sense for them to just say, well, it's going to be five hours because I got news for you. I can do a contract in one hour. Mm -hmm. That would probably take, you know, a less experienced lawyer two and a half, three hours. It doesn't mean the one that I did in one hour is of less quality. It's the reverse is true. But if you stick with billable hour, it's a false metric. You know, so that's why I wanted to get away from that. What I wanted to do instead, and let me just tell you this, take it away from law. If you imagine that you're building an addition on your house, maybe you're building a sunroom and you've got two contractors, you tell both contractors what exactly you want. You give them the plans and the specifications. And the first contractor comes in, looks at it, it takes all of his measurements, and he says, it's going to cost you $65,000. This is what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to build your sunroom in accordance with the plans and specifications for $65,000. And the second contractor comes in, looks at your plans and specs, and does all the measurements, pulls out his toolkit, and he says, I'm going to use this tungsten-coated hammer. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to use that. And I'm going to use this cordless drill has 195 foot-pounds of torque. I'm going to use that. And this saw could cut through a steel girder, and I'm going to use that. And so I'm going to get started, and we'll just see how long it takes me. And at the end, with all of these great tools, at the end, I'm going to give you a bill, and whatever's on there, you're going to pay it. <laughs> There's no way you'd hire that guy. Yeah. You know, but that's what lawyers do. Right. They say, hey, I went to Harvard. I really know what I'm doing. I'm going to look into your project. I'm not going to tell you how much it costs. And at the end of the project, whatever it is, I'm going to give you a bill and you're going to pay it. Why would you do that? Yeah, that's like healthcare as well. (laughs) (laughs) We have no idea what it's going to cost you. (laughs) I had a buddy who actually his name is Mitch. Shout out to Mitch. He's awesome. And he was playing soccer and he had an injury. He gashed his head. And so it's bleeding kind of a lot as sure. heads tend head to do. do. Yeah. And there was a nursing student at the University of Illinois. And he's like, hey, so what do you think this is? He's like, oh my gosh, you're probably gonna need maybe four staples. And he's like, okay, now I know what I'm looking for. I can shop around. <laughs> and he called the hospital. He's like, you gotta come in here right away. He's like, well, I will. I just try to see kind of what you think, you know, ballpark, what four staples <laughs> is gonna run. <laughs> and it was fascinating, the mindset. So That's point amazing. made. <laughs> we care about deliverables, the outcomes, the results, yeah. less so about how fancy you go about getting there. So yeah. I think this has applications in numerous spheres. So how do you think and operate and work in that way? You say you get some clients keep bringing it back, but how do you just operate in the alternative world? Well, I think one of the things we haven't talked about, which is right down this alley, is in terms of sales and marketing. So I wanted to hang cabinets up in my garage, you know, for tools and stuff. And so my garage has, you know, concrete walls and I needed a drill that would go through the masonry that would go through the concrete. And so I went to Home Depot 
and they have a whole, if you've ever been in there, they have a whole aisle of drills and their bright colors that are orange and they're yellow and some are chuckless and some have this torque and some are cordless and some have this battery life and all that stuff. But that's when I started thinking about it. The fact of the matter is I didn't want a drill. I wanted a hole, right? People don't buy drills. People buy holes. That's the solution I want. Tell me that it's going to create this hole. That's what I'm buying. And so when you you think about that from your marketing standpoint, you know, I was called in recently by this firm that does business valuations. And you get a business valuation for a number of reasons. Maybe you're giving stock or somebody's buying in stock. And so they need the valuation to know how much value they're getting, what the purchase price has to be, what the tax consequences are. Maybe for estate planning purposes or somebody dies and, and there's a bequest. And they called me in to talk about this. And so I was looking at their proposals, and their proposals were talking about all the different ways you can do this valuation Mm -hmm. and their methodologies. It was all Greek to me, really. I I only took one economics class, and it's better off forgotten. But they went pages and pages about this, and then, of course, the bios and their approach and their schooling and training and certifications and all that stuff. And it was only on, like, two-thirds of the way through that they got to the whole, you know, that they got to... Well, we can arrange to do evaluation that's going to meet your needs for tax purposes. And this is, you know, what our clients have to say. And these are some of the stories in which we had a positive impact. That's really what they should have led off with so that people can see themselves. They can see their solution and what you're offering. And then if they're interested enough, then they'll dig into your approach. They'll dig into how you do it. But first, you got to tell people and let them know that you can address their problem. And so that's seeing the world through somebody else's eyes is about. That's what starting your process, whether it's marketing, whether it's hiring, whether it's getting a partner, whether it's signing a contract, starting with the end in mind. And the end in marketing is for your best customer to believe that you are the best solution for them. Mm -hmm. Very good. Understood. Thank you. All right. Well, now I'd love to hear about some of your favorite things. If you could start us off by sharing a favorite quote. You know, I was thinking about this, and I keep coming back to Life of Pi. I don't know whether you saw the movie, but it was just a terrific movie, really great cinematography and everything. But there was a line in that movie, and it said that to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is to choose immobility as a mode of transportation. And I really believe that, and I talk to entrepreneurs so often, as Lord, I know you do, and there's always that voice saying, oh, Other people can do this. I'm not sure I can, or maybe somebody else is smarter, or maybe this isn't the right time, or, you know, it's just not for me. I'm not meant to achieve what I always envision. Maybe it's best to not try. And while doubt is fine, you know, it helps you prepare, and and a healthy dose of fear um, may be better than just unbridled and unchecked optimism. Too many people let that become their philosophy of life, and then it becomes immobility. Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or piece of research? My favorite study is something called the listeners and the tappers. Have you ever heard of that? About unlearning and how tricky it is. Go ahead. There's part of it that's that's unlearning. Yeah, I think it's the most valuable tool for parent to student. Anybody who talks to other people wants to make their message understood. Parent to student, coach to team, employer to employees, team leader to team. And the way it worked is there was a graduate study in 1990 where you had pairs of students, 
a listener, a tapper, a listener, a tapper, a listener, a tapper. And the tappers had to take a song that was obviously going to be common. It's going to be known generally. Could be Happy Birthday, could be the Star Spangled Banner, whatever. And then they just tapped on the desk. You know, so it was like this. I don't know if you can hear it, but. Right. And so the listeners had to guess what the song was. And so they did this on a series of experiments. And do you know what the success rate for the listeners was? I forgot. It's 2%. 2, yeah. 2. And (laughs) what made that interesting was not just that the listeners couldn't readily call this up. It was that the attitude of the tappers was, (laughs) how could you not get that? And the reason the tappers were like that is because in their minds, they heard it. So once you hear that song, it's hard to unhear it. And so they couldn't understand. They couldn't put themselves in the mindset of the listener. They couldn't understand why the listener didn't get it. And so when you're talking about something, if I'm talking about a legal topic or an entrepreneurial topic or you're lecturing within your wheelhouse, it's easier to be a tapper. But the best communicators are those that can communicate with the mind of a listener so that they don't keep hearing the song. They ask the questions or they answer the questions the listener would have. And they don't use lexicon that a listener wouldn't know. They teach. But the worst communicators, and we've all had them in in school or, you know, a team lead or as a coach, are those that assume so much knowledge because they're just tappers and they can't see the listener mindset. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? I'd have to go with Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Oh, yeah. We had Greg on the show and he was fantastic. He's terrific. I really love him. <laughs> oh, I am. Uh, I'm moving. So I actually am literally licking all these clothes in my closet. Right, I probably don't right. need to go. So that was Greg McCune, <laughs> episode 38. Any of listeners are curious. So good. Yeah. And how about a favorite tool? My favorite tool at this point, I rolled out a Get Things Done app called Todoist. Oh, that was you? Well, no, no, no. I know not nationwide. <laughs> you begin. You, oh, in your firm. <laughs> I should take so much credit. That should have for that, showed Pete. up in go. your bio. <laughs> yes, Pete, that was me. I, that was just a hobby. <laughs> that was great. But no, in my firm, because I was looking for a tool to be able to, you know, we have these weekly client meetings and we go over all of the matters. But I thought, I guess it's possible for somebody to say, yeah, I really have to call her in week number one. Then week number two, they report, yeah, I really have to call her. And we wouldn't necessarily know. So now we have all of our cases and all of the things we have to do. And if I need somebody to do something or if I want my secretary, hey, remind me next Friday that I have to do this. It's all on there and it gets crossed off and it really helps us keep things from falling through the cracks. Oh, that's great. And so now what's the habit? The habit is meditation. And I'm not a crystals and aura type guy, but I was curious about it. And there's an app called 10% Happier. Oh, yeah. Dan Harris, episode 44. You keep hooking it up with the backlinks. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Dan Harris. And so it's called Meditation for Fidgety Mm -hmm. Skeptics. And so I started doing this. I come in in the morning before anybody's here. And I'll just, the way it's set up, each day they'll have a video, which is Dan talking to whatever teacher or trainer in that particular course there is for two to four minutes. And then there's a guided meditation. And that meditation might be anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes. And I didn't know if it was doing any good. I still don't know if it's doing any good. But I realized that I liked it. And it's mindfulness so I can start thinking about, boy, I'm really irritated by this. Why am I irritated by this? What's the real reason? 
And so it's interesting. Some I found better than others, but I like it. And I think it's something that's worthwhile. So anyway, so that's what I started to do. And I'm probably about six or seven months in. Oh, cool. Thank you. And how about, is there a particular piece that you share in your writing or speeches that seems to really connect and resonate with folks and gets them, you know, sharing and nodding their heads? I think when I talk about looking at the world through somebody else's eyes, there are two things. One is looking at the world through someone else's eyes. The other is what we call around here rule number one. Everybody here knows rule number one. My kids know rule number one. And that is make it easy for someone to do what you want them to do. Hmm. Yes. And so what that means, so for example, one of the things I want my clients to do is pay me, right? So <laughs> if I only told them that I would only take cash and you have to personally deliver it to my office on Tuesday mornings between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., I am not following rule number one. I am making it hard for somebody to do what they want me to do. But if you take checks and credit cards and PayPal and you allow online payment and people can see their statements online and all that stuff, you're making it easy. So similarly, let's go back to the billable hour. If I do my best job with a, an open line of communication, so I want my clients to call me, you know, just to bounce things off of me because when something is really bothering them, I'll already have my finger on the pulse of their company. I'll already know what's going on. Well, if I'm just billable hour, and they get dinged $20, $30, $50 every time they pick up the phone and call me, they're not going to call. Right. So I've set up my business model at odds with how I'm going to do my best work. I'm not following rule number one. Does that make sense? That's great. Thank you. I'm going to chew on that for a little while. <laughs> and what would you say is the best place to find you if folks want to learn more and hear what you're up to? Where would you point them? To farsightedbusiness.com. Okay. Far is fire aim ready, but it's farsightedbusiness.com. And yeah, the books, the online course, everything can be found there. And I'm on Twitter at Wagenheim, but Farsighted Business is probably the easiest place to go. Okay, great. Thank you. And do you have a final parting challenge or call to action you'd issue to those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I would say just in line with their talk, you know, figure out what awesome means to you. You know, tell yourself a story. Imagine yourself being interviewed and somebody says, how did you do it? How did you become this awesome at your job? And you have to not just give platitudes, but you have to give a detailed answer. What interview would you give? What answer would you give? And if you write that down, then your challenge is tomorrow to take one small step towards making that interview possible. Mm, I like it. Thank you. Well, Elliot, this has been a real treat. I wish you lots of luck and congratulations to your son. You're off to the Eagle ceremony tonight. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are. That's right. I, and I appreciate you moving this chat so that I could go. Hey, listen, Pete, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. There you have it. Avoid the righteous indignation and you'll be in good shape. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to things mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep95. And I would encourage you to punch the subscribe button so you won't miss hearing from folks like our next guest, Colonel Jill. She had a stare down with Saddam Hussein who demanded that she be killed. So that's kind of exciting stuff. And she also has a lot of practical tidbits as well. So hope to catch you then. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. 
For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 